With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome into Double Stint, Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine. John DeGeese joins me from Chicago. We did have some racing over the weekend, but John, a ton of news, including the unveil of the Peugeot LMH car. We also had uh, big news about prototype convergence with LMH and LMDH racing together, not just in the World Endurance Championship, but confirmation as well of that happening in IMSA starting in 2023. So a whole lot to cover on this week's show. It should make for a busy one. Absolutely. We'll get to the news in just a moment. First, though, quickly did want to mention what took place at Monza with the European Le Mans Series back in action. Panis Racing got a long-awaited win in LMP2. Will Stevens, Julian Canal, and James Allen teamed up to get their first win in the ELMS since 2016. The points leaders, WRT, still had a nice, solid result, finished in fourth, and they keep their points lead with Louis Delatraz, Robert Kubica, and Yife Ye. Uh, they've had four top five finishes in each of the first four races, so very impressive stuff there. DKR Engineering won its second straight in the LMP3 class. Laurence Hare and Mathieu de Barbeau picked up the win there, and GTE saw Spirit of Race lead a dominant effort from the Ferrari contingent. Duncan Cameron, David Perrell, and Alessandro Pierre Guidi, the winning driver lineup in that one should also mention that we had gt masters nls and gt open plus british gt all racing over the weekend as well more on all of those series including elms can be found at sportscar365.com either in standalone stories or in the weekly racing roundup to the news and absolutely massive news john from the aco the fia and from imsa with full prototype convergence effectively achieved between LMH and LMDH. This has a number of different implications, but let's just start with the news. When it became apparent to you that this is the direction this was headed, what was the significance of this achievement between the the, uh, aforementioned groups? Yeah, it's absolutely massive, and it's something we've been talking about for months and months and months, if not years. And um, we had the first hint of it sort of being formalized when the World Motorsport Council um, released its uh, roundup on Thursday of last week. And then uh, a joint statement was put out about 24 hours later by IMSA and the ACO um, confirming convergence. And like you said earlier in the show, um, the allowance of LMH cars into the WeatherTech Championship as well, um, pending a couple different things such as a manufacturer agreement financially and all that we've talked about before but still the the technical feasibility of allowing lmh cars to race in imsa and then lmdh obviously to race both in imsa and in WEC is is absolutely huge so the press release that was um, issued jointly on friday basically outlined four key areas that um the platforms have sort of come to a consensus on and um one area is tire size. Um, LMDH cars will adhere to the non-hybrid uh, um, tire size of LMH. Then we have acceleration profiles for all-wheel drive cars. That's the Lamar hypercars with the front wheel drive um, regen capabilities there. Um, basically, those acceleration zones, reactivation zones for the power can be man- manipulated at 
at different types of tracks through a balance of performance system. Previously, this was written in the technical regs as, um, I think, 120 kilometers an hour they could be activated in, in the drive. We had seen a change to this at the Portimao um, World Endurance Championship race recently where the Toyota was increased to 130, but it wasn't written in the BOP. Um, I guess they were playing around with it there to sort of see if it could be used as a BOP method. And that has been one of the key areas confirmed in the convergence agreement as well, um, that um, front wheel drive activated uh, power from the Toyota, from the Peugeot, and most likely the Ferrari. We haven't gotten confirmation on its drivetrain configuration, but um, having that flexibility there can help put the two different balance, two different cars on to more equal terms. Um, Also, we have um, some other um, changes with the the limitation of um, control software for LMDH that'll um, uh, that'll make its electric motors traction control capabilities adjustable. Um, that could help or hurt depending on when they need that to, to happen. And then also um, both types of powertrains will have identical coasting capabilities, and that's a big point too because the the front differential um, nature of the LMH cars, um, hybrid LMH when they're mounted on the front was a huge advantage in braking and in in terms of um, uh, acceleration as well. So um, a lot of technical details, a lot of things that still have to be decided, but I think um, certainly this was a, a great um, development. And without forgetting the other um development is is an aero development where LMH cars will continue to be homologated at the Sauber wind tunnel in Switzerland, while LMDH cars will undergo um, homologation at Windshear. That's um, a facility that NASCAR uses in North Carolina. Um, However, if either of those cars want to take part in each other's championships, they have to be basically validated at each other's wind wind tunnel of designations. So, um, yeah, other than those details, I think it's pretty much a a done deal that this is going to happen. Um, There's still a lot of questions, but um, certainly a, a monumental day for sports car racing. And we'll get to the questions and the implications for a moment, but I want to double back on simply the fact that this achieve, this uh, this agreement rather was in fact achieved. This has been the hope ever since LMDH was announced that we would have full-on prototype convergence between the two series, but I'm not sure it was ever certainty until now and even then like you point out there are still things that need to be taken care of but for these groups to be able to come together and make this happen given the bumps along the road and the complications of the process it really is a monumental achievement yeah um there's not much else to really say about that because it 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 took a lot of work from all involved to make this a reality um you know I've questioned it at, at some times whether it would happen or not. I know there was a real critical point um, right around this Paris meeting um, about certain information potentially getting leaked out to journalists and then into the media and and concern that it could lead things down the, a different path. And there, everybody was on real heightened alert, I would say, in the last month or so, um, just making sure all the, the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed to make sure this was going to become a reality. Um, it was almost like it had to be done. And, and we've said it before that, we you know, you have 
the amount of manufacturers in, in each corner between you know the Volkswagen Group and, and BMW with LMDH globally, um, along with Acura and Cadillac and and um, and and whatnot in in on the LMDH front, and then you have Ferrari, Peugeot, and Toyota in LMH. You know you you you, you can't one of those categories couldn't be a second class citizen. It couldn't just be a subcategory. They have to play on even terms. And um, this is the best way that, that, that the, the rules makers have, have figured it out, at least for now. And I'm sure there's going to be some changes. I'm sure there's going to be tweaks. Um, we haven't seen the the first LMDH car turn its first laps yet. We won't get to do that, see that until the end of the year with the, with the Porsche. Um, and we only have two LMH cars on track right now. And, and, the third one with the Peugeot set to be on track, I think, by the end of the year as well. But um, still, there's a lot to be learned and a lot of data to still be poured over. But um, the greatest news is that we do have an agreement right now. And we should celebrate that news. It is, without equivocation, very good news. But I do think, for the reasons you've laid out there, also, when you were talking about the various differences between LMH and LMDH and how they need to find a way to make it equitable for all involved. I think that just lays out how complicated this task is going to be to try and make these two platforms play nicely together. And I go back to the early days of of this current gen LMP2 and DPI when it was a combined class, just the prototype class, in IMSA, and those at their core were much more similar in their in their construction than LMH and LMDH are going to be, and yet they couldn't find a way to make those work all that well together, and the class was ultimately split up. How confident are we that these two very different philosophies for prototype racing truly can compete on a, on a level playing field? I always think of level playing field and, and a conversation I had once with Scott Elkins, who was at the time the the guy in charge of the BOP for the, the later years of the ALMS and the early years of the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. And he always said, you can't, can't mix, you can't completely balance apples and oranges. And I think that's always still going to be the case with this platform here with LMDH and LMH where it's not going to be 100% perfect but you're not going to be it's not going to even be 100% perfect within LMH as well we're seeing that right now with the Glickenhaus non-hybrid compared to the Toyota hybrid there's so many different layers and there's so many different possible avenues and and different um, groundbreaking concepts like the Peugeot we'll we'll get to I'm sure in a few minutes about how radically different that car is and how that car could react differently to the BOP within the LMH class alone, within LMH platform alone. So um, there's a lot to still digest, and and I don't think it'll ever, nothing will ever ever be 100% perfect, but I think this is the, the closest we'll be able to get between these two platforms, and sure, an LMH car may have an advantage at one track over another, over LMDH, or a, or a certain car within this, the particular platform might have an, an, an edge over another car, but that's that's racing. That's what happens, and it's it's not a perfect world. Um, otherwise, we'd be running a spec series with spec cars, and, and I don't think anybody wants to see that. No, you're right. There's no doubt. It would certainly be easier if we weren't trying to fit two very different sets of regulations into one slot, but that's the hand that we've been dealt, and, and I think the powers that be have every reason to 
to try and make sure this works because so much rides on getting this right. We have every belief that this could be a new golden era of sports car racing if these regulations can be good and can be made to work. So let's get to what is without a doubt the most positive element of this in the fact that we could be seeing Ferrari and Toyota come to race at the Blue Ribbon events in the States where while we might see some of the LMDH manufacturers that are IMSA specific like we anticipate Acura to be or Cadillac when they ultimately do announce taking their cars across the pond to race at Le Mans. Who, who do you think realistically are those that might be interested in taking advantage of the fact that LMH now for the first time has been confirmed as potentially eligible in IMSA, assuming certain criteria are met? Yeah, I think Toyota is certainly interested for the key events like Daytona, Petit Le Mans, Sebring, depending on the race format. Um, you know, if if it still ends up being a, a super Sebring where there's two events, I, I, I don't think you'll see a lot of the LMH cars take part in the IMSA portion of the 12-hour while they're, as they're fully focused on the WEC part. But um Certainly, you know, let's just say Daytona as a, as a benchmark. I think Toyota's interested. Um, Ferrari should be interested, although they've been a bit evasive in terms of their involvement in North American sports car racing. So I don't want to take anything for granted there. Um, we know Glickenhaus is interested, um, but that could always come down to a, a commercial agreement um, that will have to come down to a commercial agreement. Um, Toyota could be part of an existing commercial agreement with IMSA, um, Ferrari as well. So, um, you know, that, that we'll have to see. And then um, Peugeot, the other LMH manufacturer, right now they've said they have no current interest in IMSA, no current plans, but I guess – you know, that could always change because we did see the brand here um, for quite a few years racing in the key um, uh, ALMS endurance races back then and enjoying some success as well. So it wouldn't surprise me to see um, Peugeot on the grid in some of the key races in America as well, um, but maybe not for the launch year in 2023. It's interesting you brought up Sebring because the last note that that I had that I wanted to ask you about actually was about Sebring and whether or not we might see the two events combined. So going from the Super Sebring format to what we saw uh, briefly with uh, ILMC and I guess it would have been ALMS at that time, right? That uh, yeah. that ran a joint event and famously had the longest post-race podium in <laughs> motorsports history. But, I mean, when we're starting to see more and more of these classes overlap, and especially if we were to learn at Le Mans that GT3 was coming for the WEC, does that seem like something that could be viable to, to make Sebring part of two championships and thereby really raise its uh, its global significance? Yeah, things are starting to come together where it could be a, a realistic possibility. Um, the only thing, the two things that would sort of raise flags to me are one you mentioned is, is GT3. We'd have to make sure GT3 is the same in the WEC as it is in America, and that's still to be determined. And another more important thing is the BOP and who would regulate mm. the BOP for that race, because it's my understanding the, the FIA. And, and WEC and ACO, they're going to do their own BOP, and IMSA is going to do their own BOP for the top class. And uh, just like they do right now for GTE, you know, they have the different BOPs, even though the same platform is allowed both in IMSA and in the World Endurance Championship. So um, the prospects of a single race would be mega, and I would really 
love to see that happen again. Might be an issue on car count, you know, on maximum capacity. I think there were 63 or 64 cars in that um, first race, that one and only. Yeah. Well, there was there was an ILMC race in 2011 as well, so before 2012. WEC, but nonetheless, I, th- I remember there was always talk of a, a capacity issue there as well. Um, that could be a, a, a certainly an issue for there, but um, I think BOP could even be a bigger talking point just because the two sanctioning bodies will most likely not be on the same BOP. Well, they do have one more pit lane than they used to have at Sebring. True. And yeah, okay. There, there might be a way to, <laughs> to do that somehow, but I, I'm sure there is some kind of competitive advantage by oh, having a, without a, a doubt. pit lane. With the, 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 you know, you'd have to handicap the, the pit stops or something yep. on the back stretch because that's a shorter pit lane than the main straight. And it could get into all these other balancing acts too but um yeah i guess you never know um stranger things have happened yeah getting way ahead of ourselves here but i mean you could put gts in one pit lane and prototypes in the other anyway it's interesting to think about but uh, i don't know if we're anywhere near really needing to think about this at this point um kind of getting away from this topic of conversation but to something equally exciting it was the unveil of of the peugeot lmh car which we hinted at on the show last week it hadn't happened yet at the time we recorded it and i don't think that well i certainly wasn't expecting what we got from peugeot and i will say up front normally anything that is so futuristic and different than what I'm used to. I I don't usually like it very much, but I have to say, I really like the look of the car. The unveil video that Peugeot put together, I thought was really well done. And I'll tell you, I'm very excited for what they will bring to the table when this project comes online. Yeah, I think this is a spitting image of what the ACO and FIA had with what they thought of what what a hypercar would look like. And I know there was a lot of letdown um, when Toyota unveiled their um, GR010 hybrid, and it very much looked like an LMP1 car enhanced in some areas. And I, I think this is more of a ground-up design of what uh, this class is made of. And um, we'll wait and see to see what it actually looks like once it starts testing. This is a concept reveal from what we understand. But according to Peugeot's technical director, Olivier Jezonin, he indicated that this is very close to what you'll see um, when the car hits the track. And I, I think the biggest surprise and the biggest maybe omission is the lack of a rear wing. Yep. Um, it, it reminds me of almost how radical Formula E shifted things when they went to the, the Gen 2 package um, with the removal of their rear wing. Um, obviously, there's a lot of ways you can you can get generate downforce and drag and, and whatnot. And the, the the folks at Peugeot feel confident with this design um, that they can do that. So, um, yeah, I, I was really shocked when I saw that. Surprised it didn't get leaked out in the media anywhere mm-hmm. um, before then. But um, nonetheless, uh, um, a great design, um, certainly one of my favorites already, and I'm really eager to see this car hit the track. I think you hit the the nail on the head. This, When I saw it, I thought, okay, yeah, this is what I imagined a hypercar would look like. And I, I think it took a little longer to get there than we anticipated. I mean, the Glickenhaus has its unique elements as well, but nothing quite to this extreme. And I give Peugeot credit and also the rulemakers credit to some degree for leaving 
the flexibility in there to interpret rules in a creative new way, effectively saying you're allowed to have one adjustable aerodynamic component, but not specifying what that component is. And what we still don't know is what it's going to be on the Peugeot, because it's obviously not the rear wing since there isn't one. Yeah, um, they were a bit tight-lipped on that, and I've under, understandably, because you know Ferrari's still in the middle of development of their car, um, who knows if there's other manufacturers like Alpine that could be going down the LMH route as well. So um, they were a bit bold by putting this out there this early, because mm-hmm. this car, considering this car won't be on track until December, I believe, or November, December, um, you know, they, they could have waited on the unveil by a few months, um, but they uh, elected not to. They elected to um, uh, showcase it now, and um, yeah, it's uh, pretty revolutionary. If somehow you've missed what this car looks like, check out sportscar365.com. There's some pictures there and some renderings and things of that nature, so it certainly is unique and and eye-catching. I have to say, like I said earlier, I really do like the look of the thing, and I hope it's as fast as it looks Staying with WEC-related news, we did get an update to the World Endurance Championship calendar, and it's unfortunate news because a stalwart event on the WEC schedule has been forced to drop off due to COVID concerns with the cancellation of the six hours of Fuji. Yeah, I I think that had to be the only logical decision, considering everything that's going on in the world, especially in Southeast Asia right now. Um, You know, we're struggling to get the Olympics underway as it is, and I can't see conditions getting any better by um, late September. And you have to remember also that, you know, WEC can't cancel or give a green light to an event on a whim of a one or two week period, especially for a flyaway event like that. So um, very smart for them to make the call now. Um, interesting selection by having a, a double round in, Bar- in Bahrain. Um, the adjustments uh, mean that there's they'll be racing on back-to-back weekends in at Bahrain International Circuit. Um, the, the final season finale has been moved up by a few weeks, so it doesn't clash. Um, well, so it's the week before the uh, the Petit Le Mans now, uh, Motul Petit Le Mans at uh, Road Atlanta. So um, there is still no clash with, with uh, IMSA, which is great news. And it actually um, avoids a potential clash with the FIA GT World Cup in Macau. So um, smart moving, smart scheduling there by all involved. Um, it'll be interesting to see how a six-hour race in Bahrain will compare to the eight-hour season finale. Um you know, some people are not the biggest fan of the Bahrain International Circuit just because it's maybe doesn't provide the most passing opportunities or, or whatnot. Um, but I think from a health standpoint and safety standpoint and COVID impact standpoint, going with a double header season finale is a very smart idea. Um, the Bahraini um, fo- citizens and and everybody in the in the, in the kingdom were very opening open welcoming to the competitors last year during the covid scare so um, i don't see it being any different this time around and i I think it was a real smart decision um, by the wec to do it this way we're talking about implications of the date change and and avoiding clashes and actually this helps out a number of drivers right because the fuji round was set to conflict with the imsa race at long beach yeah this helps out a a lot of drivers that were 
pulling double duty between the WEC and IMSA. Um, we still don't know if the Glickenhaus is going to be doing any more races post Le Mans this year, but we do know guys like Philippe Albuquerque, um, the who drives for United Autosports in the WEC, and then um, uh, Renger van der Zander is another example in, in, in an LMP2 car in WEC and, and in IMSA. So um, avoiding this clash with Long Beach is a huge uh, relief as well for, for a lot of competitors and the media as well. Yeah, good for all involved from that standpoint. It's a shame because, uh, as mentioned, Fuji's been a long time uh, fixture on the WEC calendar. In fact, it's been on every calendar since the beginning of the World Championship or the the rebirth of the World Championship, I suppose you would say. Uh, so it's it's going to be strange not having that on the on the docket this year, but that's the way of things. And you know, it's strange, John, to be talking about COVID impact like this because at least for us here in the states, I think things feel very normal. And every once in a while, something like this will pop up, or what's going on with the Olympics, and it's a reminder that. Really, in a, in a lot of the world right now, this is a huge story still. I, I mean, going back to the ELMS race over the weekend, uh, Joop Van Outzer tested positive for COVID, and United have to withdraw one of their cars there. We know, uh, you mentioned the Macau GT World Cup, FIA GT World Cup in Macau, I suppose, um, and, and there is some information on that, hopefully returning this year, but uh, so much of this, especially internationally right now, is contingent on the COVID situation, which, even though it doesn't feel like it, for some of us at least, uh, is still very much a, a present danger. Yeah, international travel is still extremely difficult. I think it's been mastered quite well between Europe and the U.S., and we've seen a lot of those championships continue, you know, uh, rather unaffected. Um, Spectators are starting to come back to races in Europe, which is great to see. We've had spectators in the U.S. basically um, since the restart of racing, although under strict numbers initially now there's been real no restrictions um and now paddock access has been opened up and grid access and so things like you said are back to normal almost in the u.s but um other parts of the world um you know you look at um southeast asia in particular i I think that's a a big point and and i'm still skeptical of whether we'll see the fia gt world cup this year you know they issue the fia said it, it, it it plans to have it at macau um but travel restrictions permitting so um that's a big um what if right now for that i, I don't see things really improving by november but you never know uh, another country that's still grappling in the, the covid um situations australia um they continue to be under lockdown from outside um, from people from foreigners coming into the country and now they've had spikes within sydney and other cities as well that's affected um, domestic racing over there so um yeah I, i think we should be really fortunate that things are at a relatively good state in the u.s we shouldn't um, take things for granted because you never know what this delta variant or other variants of the of the of the um virus can you know, bring us in, in the coming months. But at least for now, we're able to, we're much more or less able to enjoy the racing we have. Yep, very much so. Um, so again, there is more information on the FIA GT World Cup. If you're interested, the proposed date and the various considerations in play, you can find a story about that up on the website. And the final piece of news this week, bringing the conversation back to the States and to IMSA, we've been talking a lot about GTD Pro and who might be participating looking ahead to next year. And I think both of us really thought Lexus would be 
a uh, a pretty obvious fit in GTD Pro with the driver lineups they've had over the years, but it sounds like that is by no means a certainty based on uh, the conversation you had with the team. Yeah, I spoke to Jimmy Vassar over the weekend, and um, he basically said that they're looking at it, but with no certainty that they'll do it. Um, he seemed a little skeptical and he seemed a little disappointed, I think was maybe the better word, that um, the regulations aren't more common from a technical and sporting standpoint. Yeah, we do have the same Michelin S9M tire that'll be on both classes of cars and a lot of the rules will be the same between GTD Pro and GTD, but um, little things like refueling restrictors, um, uh, BOPs will be separate. And Jimmy said that, you know, it it seems to him as quote unquote more of a repackaged GTLM um, unquote rather than a, you know, a a new GT3 based class. And um, if Vassar Sullivan will do GTD Pro, he um, Jimmy stressed that it would only be with one car, so they would end up splitting their their focus between the two different classes, which isn't a bad idea, and it's something that I sort of expected some other teams to do, but I, I sort of thought right away that, you know, with Lexus's backing and everything that goes on with this operation, that this would be a shoe-in to have a two-car factory-assisted program in GTD Pro to, to join Corvette and most likely BMW, um, but it doesn't seem to be that case, at least right now. I find it somewhat surprising that they see merit in splitting their resources between the two classes considering the the small differences between the two it seems like that would make it incredibly complicated and it eliminates one of the things i was excited about when this was announced which was the potential for a team that runs a pro-am lineup to get a little bit of factory backing and essentially run a second car uh, in, in the pros, like we see a lot in SRO over in Europe and basically using economies of scale to, to benefit them. But if the cars aren't technically identical, the incentive to do that effectively either goes away or, or becomes considerably less, wouldn't you think? Yeah, and I understand IMSA's point of view of keeping the BOP separate. Of course, starting with the same base BOP, but just having the freedom to change the BOP in GTD Pro and not have that outcome affect GTD. Um, we, we've seen a lot of teams with, you know, with a single manufacturer like a, like the Vassar Sullivan Lexus operation. Um, we, in the past, uh, Mercedes has only had one car and, and there's been other manufacturers in the past. I remember TRG with their Aston Martin a long time ago. Um, there's there's always a theory that you can almost uh, manipulate the BOP if you only have one car on track. And um, I think this is something that IMSA is very aware of, and they want to crack down on this. And that's why they're keeping their stance of having separate BOPs for the two different classes. Because if you end up changing the BOP in one class because of the because of one team's performance. Uh, advantage or or what they've been able to get out of the car or the package, then it could hamper their customers' programs in the other class, and I don't, and that could actually kill cars from the grid. You could end up leave, having teams upset and leaving, you know, with genuine bronze or silver-rated drivers that are trying to compete in the sport. So um, I totally see why IMS has done it, but yeah, it does add a different set of complexity and even. It, it changes the outcome of a potential race as well, but with, especially even with the refueling um, 
restrictor being different. I think there's a five or 10 second difference between um, what GTLM and what GTD is now. And I think that'll be continuing. So the GTD stops will still be slower than GTD Pro. And so that sort of eliminates any chance of a pro driver in the final stint of a GTD race having a chance to you know, overtake GTD Pro a car. So um, lots to think about. And, and it really opened my eyes when, when speaking to Jimmy on this because I didn't really think of those two aspects of the regulations. And um, again, I understand why IMSA did it, but it does sort of make it a little less incentivizing for, for some teams to, to sort of go all in on this new new class for next year. Yeah, I can't say I like it uh, for, for those reasons. And even while I think the motivations behind having the separate BOPs for the two different classes makes some sense, I mean, what are we balancing here? It, it's balance of performance for the car, right? Not for drivers and teams. So that doesn't sit that well with me, but I suppose you got to look after your customers, which are the teams. And if they feel like you could run off some of their customers, which are the gentlemen drivers, then you know I understand the the concern. But now we're starting to get into an element of BOP that that never really was intended, right? I mean, the the idea was to to make the cars capable, and then it's up to the teams and drivers to extract the performance out of the car, not to bring a poor team or poor driver up to the speed of a faster driver. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah that's what it should be. You yep. know? And, and, <laughs> and we see we see the BOP tests every year um, done by the SRO. They have a control driver. Right. Um, in the past, it was Jean-Marc Gounan. I, I'm not sure who it is now. I mean, it might still be him, for all we know. But um, <laughs> they use the uh, same driver, and they he goes in each car, and they basically create a baseline. And so um, that's the whole idea of, of BOP. But, you know some sanctioning bodies do it a little differently. Yeah, I guess so. All right. Well, interesting topic of conversation and a good story to check out if you'd like more from Jimmy Vassar at sportscar365.com. One listener question this week. It's from Johnny Hawksworth one who says, do you think the next LMP2 car should look like a road-going hypercar? He says, personally, I think LMP2 cars today are boring to watch. Uh, I think the should is the important caveat here. We know that that's not the direction that this is likely to go. Uh, but what do you think? Is there some merit into changing up the visual of LMP2, changing it from what has become perhaps stagnant, but certainly something that, that we've come to expect over the last 10 years or more? Yeah, I think there should be some kind of change, but maybe not more towards a hypercar or road-going style because then all of a sudden you'd have all the classes at Lama or in the WEC end up almost looking more or less the same. Uh, you know, LMDH will still have a prototype feel, I think, and, and with styling cues not quite as extreme as what Hypercar is, as we've seen with the Peugeot. But um, I still think there's room for a, a second tier prototype category with similar styling cues to what we see today and not really styled around a particular car. We have to remember that this is a customer class. There's no OEM involvement. So uh, styling it towards a hypercar could make it look like a certain model on the road, maybe. I, I don't know. And then you also have the, the factor in the four different constructors and how would you sort of mm -hmm. figure that out? So um, if it was up to me, I think it would probably be similar to what it is now, but maybe a little more space age looking, maybe make them a little more futuristic in, in some ways by opening up some of the regulations in terms of styling, but not a, not specific styling to road cars. 
Okay, good question. And if anybody else has a question for us, or you too, Johnny, if you would like to write back in, you can use the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter or leave a comment in the comment section on this week's podcast up at SportsCar365.com. Finally, let's look ahead to the weekend, John. We've got IMSA returning to action, at least the GT classes in the WeatherTech Championship, plus some support series as well. Racing at Lime Rock, 17 cars on the entry list. What do we expect to see this weekend with uh, the diminished GT LM field as well as GTD? Yeah, actually, this will be the first GTLM race. I, well, actually, that's the second GTLM race. I'll take that back because there was the WeatherTech 240, but there was only three of them. But um, this will be another one of those rounds where it's just the WeatherTech um, Proton entry and the two Corvettes. We still have a good field of GTD uh, cars, 14 entries there. We were hoping to see the Sun Energy 1 car appear. It doesn't look like that's happening, but um, certainly I think it should be a good fight. We have all the regular contenders back in um, the class after a real couple set set of couple races where there was, you know, the Salem six hours at a Glen was the, was counted towards the endurance cup. And then the weather tech two forty was just a sprint cup only race and not full season points. This is a sprint cup and full season points round. So you sort of get the best of both worlds where you have the teams like, um, gradient racing and compass and, um, uh, Carbon going for sprint cup points. And then you have the full season entries like Faf and, and Wright uh, Motorsports and Magnus back as well, because they're full season entries. And um, God, I hope we get this a little simpler, maybe in <laughs> 2023 to try to explain to fans why certain teams are not showing up to certain races. But um, uh, Lime Rock will be a good GT festival for sure. And the first of two GT only races on the year. We did have a slight BOP change in GTLM, a weight break for the Porsche, and uh, 10 extra kilos for the Corvette. No changes for GTD. It is the first trip to Lime Rock since 2019 because uh, this event was canceled one year ago due to COVID. Also on the docket this weekend, the World Endurance Championship racing at Monza. So several teams got a head start by racing in the European Le Mans Series race this past weekend. What do you expect from the World Endurance Championship? Well, in terms of BOP, there has not been any changes in the hypercarp in the LMH uh, BOP, which is the first time that's happened this year. So the same specifications for the Toyota, Glickenhaus, and Alpine. Um, Glickenhaus was planning to debut its second car um, this coming weekend, so that'll be good to see. Um, there have been some weight adjustments in GT, GTE Pro. You can check that out on SportsCar 365. But um, as you said, Ryan, yeah, it's going to be a, a, a great weekend of, of sports car racing. Um, believe it or not, this will be the first race, first WEC race at Monza. Uh, Monza had hosted the prologue, I think, for one or two editions in the past, but um, never in a race environment. So um, I'm, we're definitely looking forward to seeing um, these cars utilize this track and in 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 it's probably a really good warm-up for the 24 hours of Le Mans. A lot of teams test at Monza or, or Paul Ricard in low drag configuration and here we actually get a race before Le Mans at Monza. It wasn't intended this way obviously. This was supposed to be the race after Le Mans if um, the, the French Endurance Classic had been uh, run on its originally scheduled June date but um, I think this will be a, serve as a really good warm up for a lot of teams. Looking forward to the weekend. Should be a ton of fun. Thanks so much for joining us on the show this week. We'd love a rating and a review on iTunes if you had some time to spare and we look forward to chatting with you again next week with our next Next edition of Double Stints.